This message by Terry Virgo was recorded at the New Frontiers Together in a Mission Conference 2009 in Brighton. I'd like to mention one or two books to you before we go any further. The first one being Father, Son and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware. Uniquely, we worship a God who is three persons in one God. I wonder if you think about that very much. I wonder if you investigate that, consider that. It's a unique and glorious truth. And yet sometimes we give it very little thought. I want to encourage you to uh, get hold of this outstanding book. I found it so very, very helpful. I found it devotionally stirring. When you think about the incarnation, you think of the second person of the Trinity living in eternal face-to-face fellowship with the Father, forever submitting to his glorious headship within the Trinity, the coming of the Son, the sending of the Spirit. I've just found it wonderful to investigate, research, look into that more. I've found it stirred me. I believe it's enriched my spiritual walk. I want to encourage you to get hold of Father, Son and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware. Read it. He's such a clear thinker. If you get to like his writings, I would commend to you also God's Greater Glory, also by Bruce Ware. Some of the doctrines of the sovereignty of God can sometimes scare us. When Jesus said to Paul at Corinth, before he's ever started, now have courage, Paul, I've got many people in this city. You think, how can he talk like that? He's got many people. Paul hasn't even started yet. Is that, that sounds like God just imposes, God just makes it happen. We can get a very kind of locked up way of thinking. I found Bruce Ware so very, very helpful in showing how God and his tenderness and mercy, the way he somehow kind of respects human nature and yet brings about his purpose. It's just breathtaking. I found this a really, really helpful book. God's Greater Glory helps to unravel those things in a way that I've found unique. I've read lots of books on sovereignty. That's the best one I've ever read. God's Greater Sovereign, uh, Glory by Bruce Ware. Also, Finally Alive is a short book by John Piper, really on the new birth, the fact that God made us alive when we were dead, as we were looking at briefly last evening. He acted, he stepped in, the new birth a work of God, the wind blows where it wills, as Jesus said, the Spirit brings life, finally alive, a really very, very helpful book. And again, if you like John Piper, I don't know of any bad book he's written yet, I haven't discovered one. Uh, this momentary marriage, I have to confess, I've not yet read, but it's a new book by John Piper. My wife says it's terrific. So I say to you another John Piper book, I'm always happy to recommend his writings, I'm told this is a superb book on marriage, okay, this momentary marriage, John Piper. Okay, so four new books to recommend, and we only recommend good ones. Uh, okay, let's just pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of your presence with us. We thank you for this exciting video. We thank you for Lord, the skills that put it together. 
we thank you for the people interviewed. We thank you, Lord. Some of us just recognize those locations, those people. We've been there. We love the people. We thank you for the integration. We thank you for what John Lanferman said about that prayer time as we were around Pervez praying for our dear friend from Pakistan. And in that moment, we all became Pakistanis. Such a beautiful, Lord, awareness of the way you've integrated us, the love that flows across the nations. Thank you for the days we spent together in prayer and prophesying and waiting on you. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for these days in the bigger setting. We pray for the Holy Spirit now. Please, would you be our teacher, Lord? Would you please speak to us in terms that we know we've heard from you? We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last evening, on the three occasions I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking about new frontiers, our past, our present or presence, and then our future. We'll be looking at that tomorrow afternoon. But now in this particular session, we're looking at our our presence. I was fascinated to read, really at the turn of the century, I guess, or shortly into the new millennium, that the Times reported that 1,600 churches had closed in the UK between 1970 and 2000. And yet more recently, I'm sure you've heard, that the Telegraph reported that in the last seven years, a thousand new churches have opened. So we're living in extraordinary days of movement, transition, things closing, things springing open with life. Where are we? Well, we're just going to show you a couple of PowerPoints quickly, which first of all show you where we are in the UK. Although those pins would mean that each church is about 500,000 big, uh, they rather dominate, but those pins each represent the churches where we are in the UK. Praise God. And then we're going to see where we are in the world. Hallelujah. Now that's not every church, but that's where we are in graphic terms internationally. We are seeing God's mercy. We are going uh, to the nations. God's spoken to us prophetically tonight about the church and I'm so thrilled that he has because I want to move on from where we looked last evening about our being word and spirit, reformed and charismatic, to look now at the church. The church has been a huge value for us. The church, the restoring of the church, life in the church, that's where we are, that's what we're doing internationally. We are planting churches. The Lord Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world making disciples. Go and make disciples. What they instinctively did actually was go and plant churches. And the church is a place where you find disciples, where you find people who are happy to live under his government, under his lordship. That's what the church is. People who embrace God's government gather there. And actually, mad made in the image of a three-personed God can only come to true maturity and God-likeness in community. God is a divine community. 
a phenomenal coming together, I might say, wrong word to use, I'm sure. A society, three in one. If we're going to grow into his image, if we're going to grow into his likeness, if we are going to be more and more like him, it's impossible to do it alone. It's impossible to grow into spiritual maturity alone. I say that, I believe, without any hesitation. It is impossible to be a mature Christian alone. God has ordained that we come to maturity in community. And when one thinks that God himself, three in one, in community, how are we ever going to become like him unless we know something of community? It's possible to do one-to-one discipling. Jesus preferred to do one-to-twelve. And in doing so, he started his church. And he gathered into his 12, a tax collector who had sold his soul to Rome, and a zealot who'd happily slit the throat of any Roman soldier had a chance to. And Jesus had those two hostile guys in his one small group. And I'm sure one said to the other, what are you doing here? Well, they were in this discipleship group, and Jesus was beginning his church. Later, that tax collector, that zealot, yeah, that would be reflected more later into Jew and Gentile, Greek, barbarian, people coming into the church under the lordship of Christ and finding a fellowship that blows your mind away, finding a love, a harmony, a community, the sort of thing that we saw on the screen a few moments ago, people from very, very diverse nations, some such nations that are hostile to one another and actually finding such bonds of love that are staggering and amazing. Jesus loves the church, his bride, his delight. I want to start by saying we must treasure the church. Jesus is deeply, deeply Identified. The Apostle Paul has the privilege, probably more than anybody else, of opening up to us what the church is and its mystery and its magnificence. And I guess his first insight was on the day when he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's blinded by the light, but he has a revelation of Jesus and asks the question, who are you? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus who are you who you are persecuting. He said, Well, but I'm I'm persecuting these followers. No, you're persecuting me. And in that moment, I'm sure Paul got an incredible revelation. Me? What do you mean me? You're, who are you anyway? How can you say I'm persecuting you? That 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 mystery of unity which Paul develops in several of his epistles, he says that Christ great is the mystery. Christ and the church, they're, they're one, they're united. The church, which is his body. He develops it as he writes his letters to the churches, but surely that was the first encounter he had with this extraordinary truth. And even the Lord, the magnificent Lord, says to him, you'll learn what comes next when what? Well, one of my members, Ananias, who's he? He comes to you. And there Jesus, from the beginning, is teaching the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, the great Pharisee leader, the man full of arrogance and pride, you'll learn, I've encountered you, but a guy will come to you, one of my body, one of my members, he will come, and Ananias comes, and and Paul submits himself to Ananias. He learns what it is to get integrated, 
to value what it is to be fellowshiped with by a member of the body. Later, when Cornelius, again, an important guy, gets an angelic visit, an angel spoke to Cornelius, and he said to Cornelius, send for a man. He'll tell you. The church which God prizes and values, made up of men and women, that God inhabits, God is amongst us, God loves the church. Paul says of the church, my brothers, my beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown. I remember once I was uh, away from home quite a long time actually. I was uh, in India, first one of my longest visits in the earliest days and uh, I remember we were just about finished, went up to Delhi but then we had one more stop up into Nepal and Kathmandu and to be honest everything in me I wanted to get home to Wendy and the children I was really homesick and one more trip we went over and up into Kathmandu and uh, I was speaking there uh, to the church about leadership biblical leadership and apostolic leadership but I remember working my way through that verse in Philippians 4.1 and saying Paul's attitude my brothers my beloved my longed for my joy my crown and I thought, wow, the insight of this man. I was so moved by it. I was stirred by it as I saw Paul's attitude and realizing how he reflected the attitude of Jesus to his church. And I remember we were just breaking bread at the end. I remember being very tired and weary. And I sat down and I was just looking across the meeting and I saw the bread left on the plate at the front after we'd broken bread. And I was just looking at it, meditating on it. And I had one of those moments that we all have from time to time, I'm sure, when the presence of God just came so upon me just there and I just felt God said that's how I see you my brother my beloved my longed for my joy my crown I was overwhelmed one of those times you think oh God I don't know what to say I don't know what to do with myself just overwhelmed by the personal love of Jesus Jesus loves the church. We must love the church. We must know something of the wonder of the church, his pure delight in the church, his passion for the church. He delights over us. He sees us as his longed for. Not just I long to see you as Paul says, but I long for you. My joy, my crown. Beloved, if we are servants of God and we work in the churches, let's see this attitude. That's the way it's to be for us. We're to love the church. Let's not be too pragmatic. Let's not just manage it. Let's love the church. Let's really care for the church. Do you love your church? So I go. Now, do you love your church? God wants us to love the church, really love the church. And see it from his perspective and break through all the nonsense and the sad stories and belief for something better. Genuinely believe for a church that is glorious. To treasure the church. We need to see, secondly, a church that is founded on and flooded with God's grace. That's the kind of church we're trying to build. That's the way we're going as we go from nation to nation, city to city. We are bringing in the grace of God. We need to preach it. It says about the Jerusalem church, great grace, great grace was on them all. That was the characteristic of it. That was the wonder of it. There was phenomenal grace upon them. 
when Barnabas went to look at the new church at Antioch, when he saw the grace of God. Here it is again, God's mercy, God's kindness. God's kindness lived out on planet Earth among a people overwhelmed with the presence of God. It was visible, it was manifest, it had its heart working in all kinds of practical ways, but people overwhelmed with the reality God loves them and is for them and has removed all their guilt. A people celebrating the wonder, God is amongst us and met our deepest need, we're his forever. And we need to preach that grace, we need to actually proclaim it, not just explain it, declare it. I believe the Apostle Paul would have done that. He says, that enigmatic phrase in Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, in that freedom. That's not talking actually about freedom from sin. That's talking about freedom from law, religiousness, rules and regulations. That's what Galatians is all about. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We have to preach grace to bring people into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Not that we return again to that yoke of bondage. We step out into true sonship. We don't go back to the old slave master. We're sons now. We have a spirit of sonship in our heart that says, Father, dear Father, why would we ever want to go back? We have to preach it. We have to shout it. We have to proclaim it again and again because every believer has an enemy called the accuser of the brothers and sisters and he accuses them day and night and says, you're no good. You're not worth it. You're hopeless. And with the implied thing, try harder, be more religious, work at it more. So we have to keep proclaiming grace. Keep underlining it. Live it. It's no good preaching it, but somehow not getting it into every pore of your life. And we need to so enjoy it for ourselves, so drink it in for ourselves, so keep ourselves in the love of God as preachers and leaders ourselves, celebrating grace continually so that grace just pours out. It's hugely important. It makes the church that we are involved with look so different to many a place that's heavy, heart aching, working at it, slaving away. Grace transforms a church. We don't want just a few people, we want a whole church. And Paul fought for this. It could be argued, if you look at the New Testament, this was his biggest battle of all, to fight for complete freedom for the churches. Grace was perhaps his biggest, biggest battle to make sure that churches got right out from legalism and all that they'd come from. We need to get in grace-based communities. Is your church grace-based? Is it understood? Is it celebrated? Does it pervade the atmosphere? That's what God wants for us as we go to the nations, as we put our presence where we are, as we invade India, as we go across Africa, bringing in grace-filled churches. Thirdly, the church is where we lose our individualism and private ambition so easy to simply transfer our self-preoccupation, self-promotion into the church. So easy just to still have your private agenda and you just became converted, you become part of the church, you carry over private agenda, personal ambition, you just move in it. No, we just, the church is to be a place where we get freed from all that. Community is where you get freed from all that. And so many of the commands of the New Testament only have their outworking in the local church. It's the only place where you can make it happen. And so much Christian life only makes sense 
in the church, when we're told to lose our lives, Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You have to lose your life. Now that can sound so noble and yet it's so abstract. It's terribly abstract. Well, how do I lose my life? Well, you lose your life in the stuff of fellowshipping with people that sometimes you don't initially like, like he's a zealot and I'm a tax collector. And in that mix and in that offending and why and who's he and why did he speak like that and why didn't he speak to me and it's in all that that you lose your life. It's not just some noble thought with our hands raised and our eyes closed. I lose my life. No, you lose your life when someone says, no, you're not leading the worship next week, somebody else is. Or you're not in this group. No, your name's not on that list. It's in the stuff of church building. Otherwise, it's just a vacuum. It's, Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. It's very easy, dear friends, to just be a church hopper. Attend here, go there, turn up here sometimes. We've seen such people visit our churches from time to time. Don't belong to anywhere in particular. They will never grow mature. They will never lay down their lives. They may sing noble songs, but it's in the dealing, relational, being at group. Were you there? Why were you? All the questioning, the challenges, that's where you lose your life. Do I have to go to that group? They're such boring people. What are you saying? You're saying, well, they don't give anything to me. They don't supply it. They're not interesting. So why are we going? Well, I'd rather go to a a businessman's fellowship because they're much more sparky people. They meet my need more. Oh, is that what it is then? The group is where you meet your need. I thought it was about losing your life. Oh, you mean going to small group is losing your life? Can be. I thought it was to have my needs met. See, you can only work this stuff out in church. Where you learn to love people that you wouldn't normally love. Where you you learn to lose your life, your preferences, the things that make you tick. I thought that's what joy was about. Finding the stuff that kind of goes around me, my likes, my dislikes. Surely I'm looking for the church that I like and the small group I'd like. And Do I have to go to these people? Yeah, it's with these people you lose your life. Oh, I see. You mean that sort of spiritual principle? Yeah, it works down here in this small group. It's so important, dear friends. And if if we can make that work, we will find something breathtakingly wonderful. That these principles work in church. Indeed, it's impossible, I would say without it. In fact, many of the commands of the New Testament are put in these ways. Be kind to one another, not be kind. To be kind, be merciful. Yeah, I'm trying all those thoughts. No, be kind to one another. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. It's in that one another context that all the fruits of the Spirit grow. The fruits of the Spirit listed In Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, they work in church. They don't work in space. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another. It's as we learn to do that, as you say, well, I don't want, I think she was really unkind. She should never have said. 
that's when you lose your life. And if you don't lose your life, you're not being Christian, you're not becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. You become a disciple of Jesus Christ in all the challenges of simply living together. And it's very important for us, dear friends, to see where some of the great noblest statements of the New Testament are written. For instance, in Philippians and in chapter 2, where you've got two warring women. And maybe Paul wrote Philippians for two reasons. Thanks for the money, and will those two women stop arguing? You look at Philippians. Maybe that's the reason he wrote the letter. And he's saying in the letter, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Then he goes into one of the most breathtaking theological sections in any New Testament letter about the majesty of Christ who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, took on human form, became a servant, and down and down and down to the cross. And that which can be taken out and books can be written and can line shelves and shelves of books about what did he mean by this phrase and that phrase and the cross and when he took on this, what did he leave behind? And you're Paul wrote it to stop two women arguing. That's what it's, and, and the most magnificent statements about what Jesus did are not for theological books. They're to help you and me get on with one another. It's the wonder of the cross that changes our lives. It's the wonder of what Jesus did. So often, dear friends, people come to church and say, oh, yes, we got born again. Yes, well, I got saved. I've got saved. Can, is there any real help in this church? Oh, yes, we've got a therapeutic group. If you'd like to go along, we'll counsel you. No, the, the gospel changes you. What Jesus accomplished on the cross, we either embrace it, have it to deal with us, put to death our private ambition. See, if we don't learn that, if you don't fall into the ground and die, you'll abide alone. You can be a church member, you can be on the roll, but you're not learning why Jesus came to change a society. And it's not just we've got the greatest band in life and the greatest group and the big, it's a life God once lived in a community. A beautiful community that lives differently by learning the lessons, by embracing the truth. And it comes in church. So again, looking through Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. And we tend to take that to the individual, we don't say that God's at work in me, which is fine. But probably what Paul is writing about is you plural. He's writing about the church. Work out your salvation, especially you two women, with fear and trembling. For God is at work among you. Next verse. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's the next verse. It's not about just me and am I getting my victory over my private fear. No, it's among you. God is at work among you so that we have communities of love and gentleness and kindness. And it should be that when the world comes in, they say, what is it with these people? That they encounter a community of life breathtakingly different to anything they've ever seen. 
And it can be, if it's done beautifully, totally unselfconscious from our point of view. We're just living the Christian life, but people live in such a harsh, cruel world today. The world is so bitter, so lost its direction. To come into a community of love is breathtaking. Do all things without grumbling, complaining. And it's just like you'll be like shining like lights just to be like that. You're in such contrast to the world. So where individualism, private ambition, we've not found, I'm in the church now. Oh, there's a way I can come through. I can, I can be fulfilled. I never used to be. I can find it in church. I can find it in leadership. I can find it in a role. Now God wants to deal with those things. God wants to raise up leaders, but he wants to have leaders he can trust. But if you build more and more, they'll be safe. They're safe people. Because God's dealt pretty ruthlessly already with private ambition, secret agendas. He's already dealt with it. We lost our lives. Now he can build something. Do you want to be churches like that? I long for churches like that. It's so tragic. You go and see a bright church and you, you meet someone and you think, oh gosh, he's full of himself. I didn't realize. I had no idea. I heard someone say recently that they were so heartbroken. They met a really high profile guy and they so loved his writings and so on. And then when he met them, he said, oh gosh, I didn't realize he's full of himself. It's possible to get quite a long way and still be full of yourself. It's not what God wants at all. We want churches where God has dealt with us and that we're safe, without grumbling, without disputing. I would say sanctification is impossible alone. We have to, the need of one another. Go and make disciples. They planted churches and then they said, love one another, serve one another, work with one another. It's in that context also we find our place of serving. We build our sanctification, our Christ-likeness, where people are close enough to confront, correct, tread on your foot. If you just go to formal church life, that never, ever happens. Formal church never gets anywhere near this. Preaching centers don't get near this. So even great, great preachers, like the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my great, great heroes, didn't build a community. Didn't build lives together. It's just, wow, what a preacher. It's not without value, of course. But God wants a church relating together. That's the, that's the genius. That's the wonder. The church is his wonderful creation. It's breathtakingly different. It's in that context then we work it out. We find also, as I said, our place of service we find our place by serving one another. Some people are scared of being free from law. Paul knew that. And he said in Galatians in chapter 5, you are called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So possibly, so we're broken up from law. We can do what we like. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What's his next verse? But through love... Serve one another. That's the alternative to legalism. Through love, serve one another. And the word that he uses is the word rooted in be a slave. Gordon Fee translates it, become one another's slave. 
don't walk into license, become one another's slave. And when you think of that, you're reminded of a certain occasion when the apostles were gathered with Jesus in the upper room and no one had done any foot washing, but Jesus took a towel, disrobed, bound it around himself and began to wash their feet. And they said, what are you doing? And Peter had one of his occasional arguments with Jesus as he's being shaped by Jesus in the context of a discipling group. And then Jesus said, you call me master and Lord, you do well, because I am. I've done this as an example that you should do. In In church, in the fellowship of disciples, in love become one another's slave. That's what Jesus modeled. He said, I've done this as a model. This is, this is church. This is, what, this is what the community is like. We love one another. We lay down our lives for one another. We do humbling things. I can't thank God enough for the army behind an event like this. The unsung heroes who work such long hours to get a video like that done with such expertise. I know the hours, hours into the night. When we ran Stonely Bible Week, there were a thousand job descriptions. A thousand. And people who went and camped in the rain and didn't even get to a meeting. Crazy. Or lovers of Jesus working out their commitment in local church. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And God wants us to learn our place of serving in that kind of context. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. It's in the church where we learn these things. The church, Paul says, I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Paul's speaks of his gospel calling, his missionary calling, his apostolic calling. God has called me to bring about the obedience of faith. He's sent me, he's commissioned me. Imagine Paul's going out among the nations. He says, well, God should be obeyed. Isn't that true? God is worthy to be obeyed. God is God. He's the creator. He's worthy to be obeyed. So Paul's going among the nations saying, come on, obey God, obey God. Obey. No, no, he wants to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. God wants obedience rooted in faith. He doesn't want reluctant obedience. He wants obedience that comes from feeling, I believe this is the right thing to go. I am persuaded this is right. See, when sin entered in, when Satan caused Adam and Eve to fall, his great temptation was this. He said, God is holding out against you. If you ate what I'm offering you, you could be as God's. You could choose right and wrong. You don't have to be told what's right and wrong. You can choose. You can be as God. You can make your own choices. And man took the forbidden fruit and fell. And from that time on, everyone has been as God making his own choices. And so he said, no, that's wrong. You must obey. You must obey. But if obedience is just law saying that's what's required of you, that's not obedience from the heart. God wants obedience from the heart. God wants a church full of people who obey because they know that's the best thing to do. 
And if it doesn't come from the heart, it comes from people watching you and rules to be kept and slavish obedience so that we can get, well, I'm not allowed to do those things because I'm a Christian. So you can be at work and they say, are you coming to the party at the weekend? No, no, we're not, we don't go. We're going out on Saturday night. Are you coming? No, I don't go. Why don't you? Well, I'm a Christian. We're having a party. There'll be loads of booze. There'll be some girls there. Are you coming? No. We're not allowed to. See, that's tremendous testimony, isn't it? We're not allowed to. Would you like to come? No. And then on Monday, you go, what was the party like? Oh, it was fantastic. Really? What did you, oh, you should have been there. It was not, we're not allowed to. That's a terrific message. If you want to come and join us, then you wouldn't be allowed to either. See, that whole sense that it's just our shut-in and we don't much like it. Or we don't, we're just doing somebody else's watching. We keep the rules when others are watching. That's not obedience, that's from faith. See, guys say to other guys at work, well, you're a Christian, that means you're only going to sleep with one woman. You're going to be loyal to your wife. Is that I mean, for the rest of your life? You must be joking. But we're not allowed to go. We're not allowed to do that. You see, you can either give that impression that a Christian doesn't do it because he's not allowed to. The rules say you're not allowed to. Or you say, no, actually, by faith, I have become persuaded. God is love. God is wise. God knows best. God knows precisely what he's doing. He's amazing in love. He prepared that. In faith, I say, no, this is right. The obedience that comes from faith, not the obedience that comes from, no, sadly, you're not allowed to do it. Sounds tremendous fun, but I'm a Christian. Come and join us. See, if it's not from, God wants us to live holy and pure lives, and he knows best. God wants you to give away very large sums of money, and he knows best. He says so in the Bible. He says, give. I'll make my own mind up about that one. I'll stick with my wife, but that one, See, Jesus said, he who hears these sayings of mine is like a wise man. He builds his house on a rock. And when the storms come, he's safe. These sayings of mine, you either believe them or you don't. Well, hmm. Before tax or after tax? <laughs> How much do you have to do? You mean you have to? See, well, every time we ask that question, do you have to? You've missed the point. That's not the obedience that comes from faith. God wants churches full of robust faith. People who just say, yes, Jesus. You know, I love you. I'm persuaded. You are breathtakingly wonderful. If that's what you say is right, it's right. Satan's a liar. Jesus was so grieved. He said, he's a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. And you keep getting penetrated by lies and it affects your value system. And Jesus wants to change us from the inside. So we obey by faith. And sometimes we need that grace invasion to set us free. As Stuart was kind of hinting at as he spoke to us in the announcements. I know I do when it comes to gift days. I just need a fresh touch of the spirit. 
As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he said, I want you to know about the grace of God that came to the church in Macedonia. That out of their extreme poverty, they begged, please can we take part? That's crazy. How do people in poverty beg? Well, it needs a touch from heaven again. It just needs a bit more grace. Oh, of course. Oh, yes, you said. Give, I'll give it to you. You said you're storing up in heaven. You said it will last forever. You're saying you're taking hold of life, which is truly life. Oh, of course, of course. Whack it in. So you just need a bit more reality to break in on a mind that gets a little bit shaped by a bit frightening, credit crunch, what we're going to do. And we just need to come back into the obedience that comes from faith. So heaven is having its outworking in the church. We live a different style. We live by different values that we are thoroughly persuaded about from faith. We're a different kind of people. We know things that other people don't know. It's where we work out our obedience, a community of obedience by faith. It's wonderful. The church is wonderful. It's a breathtaking place to be. People living by a completely different system. Just one more thing in this argument is that the church needs to be not just individually obedient, but corporately obedient. What I mean is this, that so often teaching on obedience is always applied to the individual, to the young man, to the young woman, to the middle-aged guy. You know, are you being obedient? Are you being truthful? Are you living the sanctified life? Are you? And so often it's interpreted almost exclusively to the individual. But we must see that the church corporate needs to be obedient. Churches have to be obedient in the way they build church. And that's where what we came to call restoration bites. It says, no, it's not just that Jesus is Lord of this individual, that he's Lord of his church. So the way we do church comes under his lordship. So that when the Holy Spirit got poured out, we could not simply say, well, that's just my private prayer language. When God did something for the individual, it had huge ramifications for the church. But the tendency was church said, don't you dare mess with church. If you must have this stuff, you do it on your own. We're not going to change church. But when Martin Luther rediscovered justification by faith and nailed his thesis to the door, the church trembled and changed all over Europe. History changed. Europe changed. When Calvin stood, these great reformers said, hey, justification by faith, that means that's wrong, that's wrong, that's going to have to go. Priesthood is wrong. Indulgences are wrong, that's wrong, that means that's all got to go. Because why? Because we've rediscovered vital truth. It affects the whole church. We can't say, well, you can have that little bit of private truth. No, the whole thing has to change. We're looking for corporate obedience. And that's what we're looking for, churches that are corporately obedient. You see, well, I want a good church, I want a right church. I remember when I used to argue like this when I was at Bible college. God wants a church where it, all these things are in place. And then you get this cynical answer, oh, you're looking for a pure church. And then they come up with a line, and then you'll join it. won't be pure then, will it? I think that is cynicism. That stinks. And people are happy with that. They settle for that. 
I want to get the church right. Oh, yeah, well, if it's right, then you join. It won't be right, will it? You think, ah, ha, ha. Think, Wait a minute, we're talking about, we're talking about God's church. Is that the end of the argument then? That's foolishness. We don't want to sprinkle unregenerate babies and we don't want to be embarrassed by unregenerate bishops. church is not meant to be an institution you can't touch. That's why we've had to move out. House churches, warehouse churches, different kind of church. Because, well, when God started moving, we had to not just change my life, we've got to change the way we do church. That's why we're going on a mission around the world to plant new kind of churches or help existing churches make the radical, radical changes that are required. It's huge difference. The church is the key, not institutional, not democratic. Democracy might be a wonderful way of running a nation. We could have a debate about that even. But it's not the way you run a church. It really isn't. So it has to be withstood. It has to be changed. I remember a brother who, be nameless right now, was in such a church. He came to one of our conferences. He said, I just need to leave. I'm fed up with being an umpire. He was actually a pastor. But he thought, I'm an umpire in a church where everybody argues because it's run by democracy and I suggest and I second and I speak through the chair and I all this nonsense, that's church. He said, no, we've got to change that. We've got to build a completely new kind of church, not democratic, not institutional, not independent. Not independent, not celebrating our independence and reproducing independence in our ranks. When God tells us to be interdependent, these are huge, these are not passing things. You can get wonderful Bible teaching that's not related to corporate life and working these things out and see what the Bible plainly says that the Holy Spirit appoints elders. As Paul says in Acts 20, 28, the Holy Spirit made you overseas. It's not as though it's a mystery. The way the church is shepherded, cared for, is very, very plain in the Bible. And so we have to say, Lord, we are on a mission across the nations, not to be harsh to other believers. I believe God's given us a big heart to love and encourage and fellowship with, but nevertheless to be utterly committed that we will, by the grace of God, build it biblically. And that God will own that. And help us to do that. So where are we now? We're on the move, planting these churches, trying to be biblical and learn what it plainly says. In Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. It's a fearful thing. It's a wonderful thing. No wonder it says of the early church, no one dared join themselves to them. But the Lord was adding daily, such as we're being saved. This community, living in right relationship, living under the authority of God. And again in James 3, when it says teachers will incur a stricter judgment, it's not a place for people to rush in and impose authority. There are all kinds of warnings and careful instructions. 1 Peter 5, elders to shepherd the flock of God, not lording over those in our charge. 
Because when the chief shepherd comes, when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. The church is just precious and wonderful and magnificent and lived in the light of his coming. And so to apply all matters of sanctification and obedience simply to the individual and not see that as church we have to obey the way we do church is to sadly miss the point. We've got to get that right. We've got to go for that. We've got to build it properly to the grace of God. And then my very last point really, restoring has a second uh, emphasis in the scripture The theme of restoration, the theme of rebuilding what was lost is very common in the Bible. You find that Jerusalem judged, presence of God gone, walls down, Nehemiah rebuilding the city, Ezra rebuilding the house. Much in the Old Testament is about rebuilding, getting, getting the city of God right, getting the walls back up. Nehemiah heard the walls are down, the gates are burned. He said, I wept, I mourned. Why? Well, anyone could walk in and out. There's nothing distinctive. The world tells the church what it should be doing. Church, you've got to change, keep up with the times. The walls are down. There's no sense of, no, we are the people of God. So Nehemiah said, we must get those distinctives up again. We've got to get those walls up. But the second thing about restoration is the recovery of the presence of the Lord. One is getting the distinctives. One, if you like, is word and spirit again, only corporate. We must obey corporately the truth, but we must also enjoy the presence of the Lord. David restored the ark to Israel. That was a a period of phenomenal recovery. He could not bear the thought of trying to rule Israel without the ark of the presence of God being there in his capital city. He wanted the ark. He wanted the presence of God. He could not live apart from the presence of God. His testimony was this, one thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might behold his beauty, I might be in his presence, behold the beauty of the Lord. That was his daily passion. That's what he wanted. He could not run a nation like Saul could without God's presence there. And so we all know the story, bringing back the ark, bringing back the presence. Dear friends, that's what we want in church life Ezra was told, rebuild the house so that God might take pleasure in it and that he might appear in his glory. That's what God wants, a church that is truly his temple, the dwelling place of God in the spirit. Weren't we hugely privileged here tonight? As we sang and worshipped, awesome prophetic utterances, overwhelming sense of encountering God, being with God, I know this isn't a church, but it's a multiplication of many churches together. An intimacy of God's presence, quite profound in this sort of number. That's church, dear friends, where God is. Where you sit there thinking, wow, this is awesome what God is saying to us. God is here now. Don't you want church like that? I want church like that. God is here now. This is his presence with us. The dwelling place of God in the spirit where he's neither quenched nor grieved, but genuinely reverenced. And it's fundamental to our identity. The church is a group of people gathering to the manifest presence of God. That's what it is. That's what it was like for Peter, James and John. When Jesus started gathering them, 
what was it to be a Christian? It was to be with Jesus. One day Jesus said to them, I won't be with you much longer. Terrifying. Imagine Peter. Peter's left everything to be with Jesus. He's left his nets. And Jesus said, you want to be a Christian? Right, you have to go to the synagogue on Wednesday night and then here on Sunday. No, he didn't. Peter was just with Jesus every day. Every morning he woke up, where's Jesus? Oh, he's over there. What's today, Jesus? What's going to happen today? Are you going to feed some more people? Are you going to heal some cripples? Are you cleanse some lepers? Wow. Yesterday, breathtaking. Go to bed, wake up. What's today, Lord? You're just with Jesus. God is with you. Emmanuel. God is with you every day. You wake up with God. And then one day Jesus says to Peter, I won't be with you much longer. What? Don't let your heart be troubled. What? And then he says, don't fear, I'll be back. Oh, I'll be back. Don't you ever say that again. It's all right, guys, he's coming back. So it's okay, it's okay, it's all right. He says he's coming back. Don't ever say that again. What do you mean you're going away? Imagine what it was like for Jesus, for Peter, who had left everything just to be with Jesus. Left his nets, left home, let just be with Jesus. And then Jesus says, I won't be here anymore. Said, but I will, I'm coming back. We haven't got time to go into a whole passage, but we know what he's talking about. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's what he means. Being with Jesus, being with the Holy Spirit. You can keep religion. Being with Jesus is breathtaking. Being with the Holy Spirit is magnificent. For Mary, even to be with the corpse. If you read the Easter story, she thought he was dead. She comes to the grave. She says, where have they laid my Lord? She thinks he's dead, but just to be near the body. That's for her, that's what it is to be a Christian, to be with Jesus. Where have they laid him? I can't bear the thought of a day without Jesus. And suddenly, Mary, Master, don't hold me. You've got to get to know me in a new kind of way. I'm going to the Father. Don't cling. You're going to know me, and then you're going to know me by the Spirit. You're going to gather in the Spirit. I'm going to come among you. On the day of Pentecost, wind, fire fell upon them, and I'm sure Peter shouted, "He's back!" He's back. Oh, it's like it was only better. church when he's not here. I hate it. It hurts. We're to be with him. It's the whole point. Moses said, this is what makes us distinct, your presence. Even in the old covenant, he knew that. That's what makes us look different to everybody else. You're here. That's what should amaze the outsider. What is this? What's here? It's God. But that needs cultivating a relationship, sensitivity, honesty before the Spirit. The whole sanctification thing has to go hand in hand with. He's here. He's here. The church is a group of people gathering not to a faint memory of what it used to be like when Jesus was here. 
That's not what it was. Remember when Jesus used to be? Yeah, do you remember? When he said, oh, yeah, I remember. So let's write that down. Oh, that was wonderful. When Jesus used to be here. The day of Pentecost. Now he's back. He's here. Jesus is here. I want church where Jesus is here. He's in the midst in all his glory. Where God is encountered. And lives are transformed by encountering Jesus. That's church. Church is where the presence of God is known, recognized, enjoyed. Jacob said, as he encountered, he said, this is the gateway to heaven. This is the house of God. The gateway to heaven. The dwelling place of God in the spirit. Gordon Fee says this about this Ephesians 2 passage, the temple which is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. He says this, the imagery especially emphasizes the church as the new temple, the present place of God's habitation on our planet. Here is the place of God's presence in the midst of his people, especially as they are gathered to worship him and to instruct one another. God is specially present. Here then is how one is to understand the indwelling terminology of Paul among the people. Here is the ultimate fulfillment of the imagery of God's presence begun but lost in the garden, restored in the tabernacle of Exodus 40 and in the temple of 1 Kings 8. It is God's own presence amongst us that marks us off as the people of God. In the language of Moses, it is what distinguishes us from all the other people on the face of the earth. So not only do we have access to the presence of God, but God himself, by the Spirit, has chosen to be present in our world in the gathered church. What a privilege. When we bring a new church plant somewhere and begin to gather and begin to worship and begin, we bring in the presence of God into another town. The temple of God has turned up, the dwelling of God in the spirit. Jesus is back in this town, in this town. Where we put our foot, there's more land where we can bring another dwelling of God in the spirit, where his presence is manifest. Where are we now? Well, we're planting churches. We're trying to plant churches biblically. We're trying to work out what it is to be like our Trinitarian God, walking in humility, walking in mutual respect, losing our individual life in order to find it, not pleasing ourselves. Love doesn't please itself. A community of love worked out in real relationships where the presence of God is happy to dwell. I believe God's called us to such a calling. I believe God is saying to us, if we continue to build church right, we continue to honor and respect, reverence his presence and his word. There's no end to what he will do. God will take us further and further and further. As we saw last evening, I do believe we can take these words to ourselves. 
you're my workmanship, my work of art. I'm going to use you. And some of these dramatic words that we as a people are somehow intricately wound up with the nations, nation upon nation, more and more represented here by the grace of God. God helping us then, we want to be people of word and spirit. We want to be people who build church right, who welcome Jesus amongst us. Let's stand to pray, please. The band come back up, please. Draw near to God. So important, dear friends, that we love the church. We understand how much Jesus cares. How he delights in his beloved people. How he would say to every one of us, my brother, my beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown. Lord Jesus, we love your presence. We're staggered that we have value in your sight. We thank you that you are going to have an increasing glorious church. Lord, thank you that you're going to have vast communities, great crowds of people living in fellowship with you. You're going to, I believe, Lord, manifest your glory in some of these great cities. Surely the time will come, Lord, where great numbers know you, love you, fear you, serve you, dwell in harmony before you. We do pray, Father, even tonight, once again, for your ongoing wave of encouragement and blessing. I pray for every church planter here. I pray, Father, for the newest church plants, that they will experience something of the wonder of your presence. I pray we'll put a high, high value on that. I thank you for some of our early house churches when we first got going where the presence of God was so intense, so amazing. And I thank you, you want to do that with growing, growing churches, manifestation of the presence of God, the wonder that he's in the room, that he can change lives. Thank you for the extraordinary tenderness of your presence here tonight with thousands. We pray for churches flooded with the presence of God. We pray for honest obedience to doctrine. Help us, Lord, every fresh truth you bring us to obey. We pray we may not choose and select. We pray we may bring you the obedience of faith. Help us always to know your complete reforming of our character, that we're not wanting to be as God making our own choices, but to trust your wisdom with faith. Help us to know, Lord, the extraordinary joy 
of doing it your way with faith and certainty. To be more and more persuaded that you know best, whether anyone's looking or not, that it's always right to please the Lord. That it's always right. We thank you heaven and the new earth will always be right, doing it your way. Hallelujah. Get us ready for it, Lord. Get us ready for the new heavens and the new earth where we will gladly always do it your way. Let churches be an outpost where we're always doing it your way. Lord, please bless this word to us. Keep us on course. Help us to fulfill your calling. Lord Jesus, we do want to believe you that we are intricately involved in the nations. You've said amazing things to us tonight. We pray for some of those great cities that Ginny mentioned, places where you want us to break out. Oh, Father, keep us full of faith for Shanghai. Keep us full of faith for other distant cities that, Lord, as we grow and grow, we'll see you coming. One of the words God said to us was, I will give you a name like one of the great names of the earth. I want to encourage you for his glory to believe that we can see churches in Shanghai, we can see churches across the Philippines, across Indonesia, across South America. We don't stretch that far yet. But there was a time when people used to say to me, do you have any involvement overseas? And I said, no, we don't. We have no involvement overseas. Now we're in 50 nations, growing all the time. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name, fan the flame of faith, adventure in our hearts. We pray for breathtaking breakthrough on the right hand and the left. We want to have that spirit of faith that says this land under my feet has already been given. We pray for courage when we hit great cities, when we have to, like Joshua, look up at their walls and think, who am I? To remember what it was like at Ephesus when Paul turned up and how you brought an amazing church to birth. Lord, keep us full of tremendous anticipation, courage, raise up, apostolic and prophetic men amongst us, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit, give us incredible leaders for the years ahead, for your great glory. Give us wonderful flocks. We're happy to do it God's way. I pray for people to catch a spirit of adventure. I pray for the excitement, the wonder of throwing yourself into what God's doing in our generation. Come and do it, Father, by your spirit. Bless us as we worship you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give ourselves to worship. In Him I have believed, on this my hope now rests, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The awesome passing joy of knowing Christ my Lord 
Faith will help us. Now. 